It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, December 13th, 2021. Welcome into a new broadcast week here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Really happy to have you along every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. GuyBensonShow.com, all the ways to listen live, which we encourage you to do. You can stream it. You can watch on Fox Nation. You can check out the podcast if you can't listen live. That's, of course, a popular option. But our affiliates, that's our favorite way for you to listen, personally speaking. And as long as you're listening, we're happy, one way or another. And you're Resource for all of that is GuyBensonShow.com. On today's show, here's what we've got. Britt Hume will be here later this hour, Fox News senior political analyst. And as a matter of fact, programming note, Britt and I will be on the panel tonight with Brett Baer on Special Report, Fox News Channel, in the 6 p.m. Eastern hour. So set your DVRs or tune in for a special report. I'll be on with Britt. In our next hour, Janice Dean is going to be here talking about the absolute devastation across half a dozen or more states in the middle of the country, especially Kentucky, with these tornadoes. It is just heartbreaking seeing these images. We will get a report from Janice on that, plus a revelation that came out late Friday about the Cuomo brothers targeting her specifically, including Chris Cuomo, trying to ruin her reputation. When she was critical of his brother, the disgraced former governor of New York, Janice's reaction here upcoming. Also, Josh Krasauer of National Journal, Fox News radio political analyst. We will talk to him on the news of the day and the political dynamics. And I will get to one of those dynamics here in just a moment. But first, a Fox News alert as we bring you statistics. 49.9 million cases. So nearly 50 million confirmed cases of COVID in the United States. Cumulatively, the real number is much higher than that. The death toll in the United States, people who have died, Americans who have died with or of COVID, and that distinction is going to come into play in just a moment here. That number is up to 769,175. I know there are some reports that are showing it at 800,000 already. We're going off of the same numbers that we give you every day from CDC. But, you know, the death toll is shocking and horrible. The Dow is down today, 222 points, currently at 35,746. And I am guessing that some of the sell-off has to do with another round of fear slash panic over the Omicron variant. And this is where we begin today's show, and I will admit and quasi-apologize in advance that I'm probably going to go off on a little bit of a rant because the overreaction on Omicron is driving me almost to the point of insanity. 
for reasons that I just spelled out with the stats, which we bring you every single show, obviously I believe that COVID is a very big deal. It has killed millions of people around the world. Close to 800,000 Americans have died with or of COVID. We don't have a great number on how many of those deaths were caused by COVID or were related to COVID or maybe weren't related to COVID, but the person tested positive before or after they died of something else. Unfortunately, our statistics on that are woefully incomplete. So we just bring you the top line number. I am not one to downplay it. I have supported every mitigation tactic as the guidance has changed. I've been a huge advocate for vaccination. I continue to be. I am fully vaccinated. I had a breakthrough case, which my doctor explained to, more, explained to me is sort of like a booster shot. If I did not have a booster shot yet and I had not gone through the breakthrough case and recovered from COVID and therefore had that hybrid immunity, I would have already scheduled my booster shot. I've urged people in my life to get their booster shots. The data is pretty clear on it that it is a good idea with waning antibodies after about six months. And if you want to stave off a severe breakthrough infection, then getting that third shot is the right move. If you haven't gotten any of your shots yet, I would recommend please talk to your doctor. Please consider it strongly. All that being said, the degree to which you have public officials dragging us back into what feels like the spring or winter of 2020 is mind-blowing to me. And the extent to which they are attributing these decisions to Omicron, as I said, is crazy. It's absolutely crazy. So I wrote a post today at townhall.com, an analysis. You can go check it out on the chip on the tip sheet. I wrote it this morning. I updated it this morning because as of yesterday, in the entire world, do you know how many confirmed deaths of people with Omicron there were anywhere on Earth? Zero. Zero. Based on government reporting and the World Health Organization, based on all the information that we had, there were zero examples of someone with an Omicron variant COVID infection dying. None. I mean, that's mind-boggling to me. We have billions of people on this planet. You would think almost by accident someone with Omicron would, you know, get hit by a bus or something. But based on the stats available as of yesterday, the number was zero, which is why we've been saying now for a couple of weeks, and we've had doctors on the show to fortify this in their medical opinion, why even Dr. Fauci of all people is sounding relatively upbeat about Omicron and its virulence. We know that it's very contagious. We know that. We also know that it is not as severe, it would appear, certainly as Delta. It would appear to be significantly less severe. 
because if it were as virulent or more virulent, we would know about that by now. I'm all for the caution and the prudence of waiting for more data to come in. But it's not like we just discovered Omicron yesterday. Omicron has been the dominant variant in South Africa for over a month at this point. And it appears that their cases there have already peaked. Their hospitalizations have peaked. Their hospitals were not overwhelmed. The reason being, as we've heard from doctor after doctor after doctor, is that overwhelmingly the cases of Omicron have been mild or asymptomatic to the point, I'll repeat, that as of yesterday, there were zero confirmed deaths of people with Omicron. Now, that changed this morning, at least our time. Over in the UK, the British government announced and Boris Johnson stated publicly that they had their first confirmed death of someone, a Briton, with Omicron. Now, I will remind you, they have a very robust testing regime over in the UK. We also have it here. If you show up at the hospital, they're going to test you for COVID. They're catching some Omicron cases. This is true in South Africa as well. This is true all over the world. They're catching Omicron cases in many cases when it's simply incidental. People are showing up at hospitals for other reasons, other maladies, other causes. And then the test comes back positive. And it's not the Omicron. It's not the COVID that sent them to the hospital. In many of those cases, they have no COVID symptoms at all. And if they do, they're extremely mild. This was part of our hospitalization and death statistic problem that we've had since the beginning of the pandemic. It seems even more significant with Omicron because of how insignificant the severity of this variant would appear to be. But what's frustrating to me is already we are seeing news organizations take the framing of the British government, which is someone died with Omicron. And I know Johnson in his public statement said, well, you know, let's uh, let's put that off to the side. If it's not that severe, let's put that off to the side. No, that should be front and center. If it's not a severe variant that isn't sending people to the hospital, isn't killing people, that should be front and center when we're discussing a public policy response to it, not shoved off to the side. But at least the British government correctly noted that someone was confirmed to have died with Omicron, not related to necessarily, and not confirmed due to Omicron, just with it. We have no idea why this person died. And yet you are already seeing news coverage shifting and changing what the government over there even said. I saw headlines already. First, Omicron case, death confirmed. First death from Omicron variant confirmed. That is not even what they're saying, and yet that is what is being reported. And this has been one of my profound sources of anger and bewilderment over the course of the last 20 months is that we make a bunch of mistakes and those were understandable in the early days. Then we recognize that they were mistakes and then we insist on moving forward and making the exact same mistakes over and over again, not adjusting our expectations or our understanding based on that experience. It is maddening.
Here's another example. I just saw this before we came on the air. Cornell, Cornell University up in Ithaca, New York, right? An Ivy League school. They have announced, well, I'll just read it to you. They found uh, a number of cases on campus. So a lot of them, they don't tell you, but I guarantee you a lot of these cases are mild or asymptomatic because it's a bunch of young, healthy people. They say, we have confirmed cases of the Omicron variant within, within our Cornell community. I would rather have cases of Omicron circulating than Delta because based on everything that we know so far, Omicron is less likely to send you to the hospital or kill you than Delta. If Omicron becomes the dominant variant, none of this is good news because we're in the middle of a pandemic. Although we're on the tail end of the pandemic, it's becoming endemic. People aren't treating it that way. So Cornell sends out this email to the whole community. We have confirmed cases of Omicron. They write, quite, uh, quote, rather, being vaccinated, even with a booster shot, is not a license to let down our guards. See, to me, having three shots in your body is actually licensed to let down your guard and live a normal life. And if you get a breakthrough case, you are 99.99999% or whatever it is likely to survive. But they write, being vaccinated, even with a booster shot, not a license to let down our guards, and therefore, quote, all in-person student gatherings, formal and informal, are canceled. This applies to undergraduate, graduate, professional studies, includes events with members of the local community. Everything is canceled. Any social gathering, any student gathering, gone, canceled at Cornell until further notice. Exams will continue as planned, so I'm sure that they're thrilled. The students must be thrilled. You have a community that is, I would imagine, 99% vaccinated. Many of them with all three shots in an age range and a demographic of extremely low risk. And here we have an Ivy League school saying all of the social events, all student gatherings, it's all canceled. You still have children, young children, being forced to eat their lunches at lunchtime outside in like 40 degree weather, separated by six feet, not allowed to speak to each other at lunch. That is a thing that is happening. I know that might sound crazy if you live in a free state. That is what's happening in large parts of the country. The White House defended it. Jen Psaki said, oh, I have a, I have a young kid. I don't know if it's a he or a she, but he's fine with this type of stuff. A lot of kids aren't fine with all of these totally unnecessary, completely over-the-top so-called mitigation tactics for young kids who are the safest people on the planet against COVID because they're children. We've known this for almost two years, and you still have Timmy and Jenny separated by six feet shivering and freezing their asses off outside for their outdoor lunch while a bunch of vaccinated and unvaccinated adults are at concerts indoors, other places, SEC football, stadiums packed weekend after weekend after weekend. Oh, it's going to be a super spreader. It wasn't. Dr. McCary wrote a whole column about that. So you've got adults in many cases, especially often the adults do, who make the rules, doing whatever they want. Whatever the hell they want, they do it. 
But kids keep getting the brunt of this. The short end of the stick harmed over and over again. Bill de Blasio, New York City, now requiring a vaccine card all the way down to age five to go to a movie, to go to a restaurant in New York City. Five-year-olds, six first graders. A lot of medical experts are saying we do not recommend the vaccine for young kids unless you have pre-existing conditions. We do not certainly recommend mandating it for every single six-year-old. But in New York City, Bill de Blasio, Mr. Science, supposedly, he's done this anyway. This is incoherent, and it feels like we're going backwards and we're learning nothing. All right, I'm long. I've gone too long. I told you it was a rant. I apologize in advance, in fairness. (laughs) We'll take a break. We'll come right back. We're just getting started on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. If you're going to do everything in your power, make masks mandatory statewide. That's the kind of thing that that I'd never, I didn't hesitate to do in the emergency. Um, The emergency is over, so... You know, public health doesn't get to tell people what to wear. I mean, that's, that's their, you know, that's just not their job. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. That was a little snippet from Colorado Public Radio. You could hear the public radio voice. They all have that voice. And they were begging in their own special NPR way, begging the governor of Colorado to force people to wear masks at all times. They were lobbying him. And he's getting lobbied hard. That's a Democratic governor, Jared Polis. And he said, look, when there was an emergency, we did it. The emergency, he said, is over. We don't get to, in perpetuity, tell free citizens what they're allowed to wear, what they have to wear. And he is making the case that I think other officials need to make, which is, yes, COVID is still serious. Yes, we need to very much encourage personal responsibility, vaccinations. People can make decisions for themselves. But the constant pandemic footing, the constant emergency footing, even when the data doesn't bear it out, is not an excuse for constant government micromanagement. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. And control. And he's one of the Democrats out there who seems to get it, unlike many of his colleagues around the country. All right, Britt Hume coming up next. Stay tuned for that on The Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of the story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com, your connection here at The Guy Benson Show online. Many ways to listen live. 
or on the podcast free every day. We are joined now by Britt Hume, senior political analyst at Fox News. And Britt and I will be on the panel together with Brett Bayer tonight, special report, the show that he anchored for many years. Looking forward to that, Britt, and welcome back to the radio. Thank you, Guy. I, you know, I'm not going to have much to say to you. I'm saving it for the panel. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It's like, oh, I'm just going to, uh, I, I can't, I can't give you any ideas because I can steal your material. Because, <laughs> like, you make a really good point on the radio, and if Brett comes to me first, I'm totally stealing the point. So I think that it's actually a pretty good strategy on your part. I want to start with the uh, Peggy Noonan op-ed a few days ago, December 9th, it came out, Wall Street Journal. It was her column. And the headline is, Kamala Harris needs to get serious. And it was a pretty blunt, but I would say inarguably accurate assessment of the vice president. And it's a negative assessment, which is the same assessment that most of the country has reached about our vice president at this point. There was sort of a blue checkmark lefty journalist Twitter cadre that really went hard after Peggy Noonan for writing what she wrote and attacking her and calling her unqualified and overrated and all this stuff, which is actually perhaps what applies to the vice president of the United States. What did you make of uh, Peggy Noonan's column, and what did you make, perhaps more interestingly, of the reaction to it? Well, I, I had a very different reaction to it from the blue checks that you're describing who you know attacked Peggy Noonan afterwards. My problem with the column was that I thought that it was sound advice in one sense, but basically what she was saying was that Kamala Harris should now become the kind of person that Kamala Harris is not and never has been which I think is is uh, perhaps nice, but highly unrealistic advice. I think the chances of anything like that coming about are pretty remote. You know, people get to a stage in life that they kind of are who they are, and Kamala Harris has has sort of identified herself as, a, as being lighter than air, and I don't know that she can recover from that because it's basically who she is. And that is partially what Noonan argued in the column, and yet there were a lot of people who, you know, went crazy. Is this just because they are very protective of someone who very well may become president potentially or certainly could be the party's nominee for president, the Democratic Party, which is the party that most journalists belong to? Uh, is that what's going on here? Is it she's a woman of color, so they want to go to bat for her because any criticism is therefore you can't call Peggy Noonan sexist, but you can maybe imply that there's a racial element. It just feels like the the defense was not really on the merits. The defense didn't really seem to be a rebuttal on the points, just sort of like you're a terrible person for writing this. I think that's exactly what it sounded like to me as well. And I think it was kind of a partisan reflex response uh, from people who are indeed protective of Kamala Harris because, you know, she looked on paper in some respects for so long to be a tremendously promising young leader in the Democratic Party. And then she went out and completely uh, fell on her face in the primary season and was chosen by Joe Biden, in my judgment, for sort of a combination of, of reasons, most of which had to do with the boxes that she checks because she's black and she's female and she's liberal and and so on. So, um, you know, and she hasn't turned out to make much of a an impression as vice president. She's had she's struggled, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, so. I mean, quote, unprepared, unfocused, unserious. Those were the three adjectives used in succession by Peggy Noonan. And if you're a hardcore Kamala Harris fan and you love the vice president and you believe that she is prepared and focused and serious, then make that case. 
as opposed to you know, hurling invective at Peggy Noonan for saying something that if the polls are to believe uh, to be believed, not only do most Americans believe it now about the vice president, most Democratic voters believed it about her when she was running for president because she didn't even survive to Iowa. And that's right. And I think you know, there's a reason for that. You know, when she, you know, the, the Kamala Harris on paper is much less impressive than Kamala Harris in person. And so she, you know, she kind of went out and laid an egg in the primary season. And, and you know, as vice president, she's essentially done the same thing. And people now look at her and say, oh, geez, it's too bad. There doesn't seem to be anything there. And uh, the reflex to defend her is, you know, obviously because, she's, because she checks those boxes I earlier mentioned, but also because look where it, people look at Joe Biden now and think, you know, he's pretty fragile. Uh, geez, is he going to make it through his term? He seems so elderly. And then, and then of course, they look ahead to, to 2024 and say, could he really try to run again at his advanced age? And if not, who's the heir apparent? Well, on paper, at least, the heir apparent is Kamala Harris. So there's an understandable instinct among Democratic partisans to try to protect her. Yeah, I think there's absolutely something to that. And I see Carl Rove is on the news channel right now. We had him on this show recently, and I asked him about the reports. And of course, they have to say this. The Biden team saying, oh, yes, he's absolutely planning to run for re-election. He's going to be raising money to run for re-election. He doesn't want to tell the world that he's a lame duck, even if he's not planning to run for a second term. Carl, I sort of danced around it, and Carl's like, oh, no, there's almost no chance. I'm paraphrasing it. It's not an exact quote. But Carl said it. It is highly unlikely in his view that the Democratic Party will be nominating Joe Biden for president in 2024, and therefore it's a pretty high-stakes horse race already playing out largely in the shadows among Democrats, but there's kind of this unspoken understanding that – or expectation at least – that Joe Biden is going to be a one-and-done president. I mean it's sort of hard to argue with that mentality at least as – quite plausible, even if you don't want to go as far as to say it, that it's probable. I agree with him. I think he's right about that. And it's not entirely clear to me that he'll even be able to serve out his term if he continues to deteriorate. Now, he's, you know, he has good days and bad, as elderly people do, uh, who have begun to lose cognitive strength. Uh, and he may be able to, you know, sort of make his way through, but it's really pretty hard to picture him running again in 2024. And obviously, everybody knows that. Um, and so the, the race is already on, but it can't be, you know, with, with the White House um, and the president indicating that, you know, he's going to run again, they can't really say it. So we have, as you say, in the shadows, a contest to see who might who might be available there. I, I hear Pete, Pete Buttigieg is finding a reason to go to New Hampshire. Um, so I think, you know, you, could, you see some early signs. It's transportation reasons, I'm sure, nothing else. Britt, let's talk about the other side of the aisle in 2024. It looks to me, just based on his uh, you know constant barrage of statements that he's putting out and events that he's doing, that President Trump, former President Trump, is either absolutely running for president again in 2024 or would very much like everyone to believe that he is going to. And already I see Republicans grappling publicly to some extent, privately certainly, is he the best person for the party to put up? Uh, in 2024, given that he lost to Joe Biden in 2020, if Biden is is failing and there's sort of this uh, open race, could could Trump come back and 
just dominate a Republican primary again? Would any sort of blue chip candidates have the guts to challenge him or would they be too afraid uh, to alienate him and draw heavy attacks from him? Uh, and of course, you know, there's a there's an element of the base that is profoundly loyal to Trump himself. Uh, what do you make of Trump 2024? Because uh, to me, I would probably put 20 bucks down right now that he is planning on running. I, I don't have any special insight into that, but that's kind of how it looks. Well, one thing we know about Trump is that he all, at all times, in all places, wants to be the center of attention. And whether he runs or not, he's going to want to influence the race because he can't help it. Um, and so I think that the way he's acting now, he would be acting whether he's planning to run or not, because either way, he wants to be, you know, a power uh, either by uh, as a candidate himself or as somebody who has a huge amount of influence on who becomes a candidate. So I think that's all we can kind of take away from his current behavior, which is Trump being Trump uh, and so on. It's not uh, time is going to pass here. He's been you know, out of office now, what, not quite a year, right? And because of various circumstances, he's to some extent has receded into the background. Other Republicans are are coming forward and becoming and developing a following. I mean, a, a, a wonderful example would be uh, Ron DeSantis in Florida, who looks golden for re-election if that's what he wants, and looks like he could be a presidential candidate. And you know, he doesn't. He he. he we have in the presence of Glenn Youngkin in the governor's uh, mansion in, in Virginia, someone who has shown a possible blueprint for the Republican Party to deal with the Trump factor. Um, it looks like Chris Christie would be willing to take Trump on directly. Um, if somebody does that, that, that person might not be the candidate because the Trump people will so hate whoever that is, but it might make uh, it might cut Trump down to size in the eyes of other voters to the point where someone else could be uh, able to uh, take the lead and win the nomination above if, Trump. If they run. Trump. Right, if, if they run. Yeah, if they run. If people will run. Because they want to run. There's it's, you know, politicians want to run. Politicians want to run, but if they feel like their chance of becoming president someday is contingent on not taking off a lot of the base today, and they're young, like the uh, the governor that you mentioned in Florida, they might wait. And that could be true of any number of candidates who might be arguably or demonstrably more viable in a general election nationally. They don't want to tick off Trump because that, going back to something that you, that you said, Britt, Trump always wants to be center of attention. I think that's true. I don't even think he would dispute that. What better way to be the center of the of, of the national political world and, and once again uh, in the brightest spotlight possible than running for president? I mean, I feel like if that is his number one goal, just being sort of a, a kingmaker off on the side and doing an occasional rally and endorsement, that's that's more at the periphery than at the center. And if he's really wanting to be at the center, it would seem to me that the way he would do that, the way that would manifest, would be in a, in another run. Well, who knows what his ultimate, what his true financial condition is after all these years? Uh, what other legal issues he may have to combat, and how much energy and money that might take? Um, mm -hmm. 
well, there's a lot of water going to run under the bridge before a decision has to be made about this. And while, you know, on paper you look at it and you say, well, you know, Trump, he's you look at the level of support he enjoys in the polls among Republicans and so on, and, and you say it makes sense that he would run for president. I'm not disputing your logic. I'm just saying that, uh, you know, a lot of things can happen between now and then. And there's also this guy. There may be a sense in the, in the public uh, that will manifest itself in various ways, that that these years, the turbulent Trump years, and all the strife that was associated with them are something people wanted to put behind them, and that's why, and that, in my view, is how Joe Biden got elected. And he didn't yeah. do that. He manifestly has not done that, and the current outlook with so much dark stuff on the horizon um, suggests that he will not be able to do that, because he's really not even trying to do that. So people may decide that this era of these old men, Trump and Biden, is something we want to put behind us, and it's time to move on. And if that sentiment takes hold, and it could, um, that would do more than anything else to deter Trump. Hmm. Or and I do think, on the Biden point, Brett, I think that you're exactly right. A huge reason that Joe Biden is president is because he was effectively promising normalcy, and he did it. Basically from the basement, you know, he tried to go out there as little as possible. I'm the safe, comfortable alternative. I'll end the chaos and bring us back to something approaching normal. We're going to defeat this virus. We're going to do it, you know, through science. And then, it, you know, the whole thing's going to take off. And it has not felt normal. And that is why Joe Biden's approval rating is in the ballpark of, you know, 40, 41 percent in so many of these polls, uh, where he's struggling even more on the number one issue, which is the economy. Britt, I want to ask you one more question. Yesterday I was here at Fox. I was over in one of the uh, studios, and I was on the panel for Fox News Sunday. And at the very end of the show, they had us stick around, and we were all in different locations on the panel. And our now former colleague, Chris Wallace, made an announcement that I certainly was not expecting. I think very few people here were expecting, but uh, he did his last show as the anchor of Fox News Sunday yesterday. He had some very nice things to say about his 18 years here at the helm of Fox News Sunday. I saw your tweet that you go back decades with with Chris in terms of uh, reporting side by side back when you were covering Congress together in the 70s. And I know he's been a colleague of yours here at Fox for nearly two decades. Just a quick thought from you on uh, Chris Wallace and his his place in the history of Fox News. And we just celebrated 25 years here and, and a lot of that uh, featured every Sunday, some tough questions from Chris Wallace. Well, I think people should remember this about what he said about how he how he'd done here. He had a great run here. He had a great run here in considerable part because management here gave him an opportunity that he really wanted and appreciated. He loved the job. He used to say that that uh, you know that he that's the best job he ever had. And so when people talk about Fox News being a place where all only you know one set of viewpoints is is tolerable and all that, look at what Chris Wallace was able to do here. Now he's moving on, something new, something different. Uh, I did that sort of late in my career as well, not as late as he did. Although he tried something new when he came here. So I get all that, and uh, I'm sorry to see him go, but uh, you know, I wish him well. He's an old friend of mine, and we've had, a, we've had a lot of experience together. Yeah, I wish him well also, and it was just definitely a career memory for me being on his last panel, Fox News Sunday, and I just wanted to get that thought because I know you guys go way back. Britt Hume, we always love having you here, senior political analyst at Fox News Channel. And I will see you tonight on the TV side, and I promise I will not steal any of your points, at least not knowingly. 
<laughs> I'll make the same promise. Thanks, Guy. <laughs> Sounds good. Britt Hume on The Guy Benson Show, and we'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We're back. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for being here. I just want to highlight this headline from the New York Times from today. Israeli leader holds historic meeting with... Emirati crown, uh, crown Prince. Here's the lead from the Dateline Jerusalem, but the meeting was in the United Arab Emirates. The Israeli Prime Minister met the Crown Prince of the UAE on Monday on the first official visit by an Israeli leader to the Gulf State, a historic encounter that would have been unimaginable a few years ago and showcasing the rapid realignment of the Middle East, driven by shared fears of a nuclear Iran. Naftali Bennett, the Israeli prime minister, spent four hours with the de facto Emirati leader, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed, two hours longer than planned. They met in Abu Dhabi amid renewed tensions between the United States and Israel, which opposes revived efforts by Washington to persuade Iran to curb its nuclear ambitions in exchange for sanctions relief, because that was, now this is me, no longer the New York Times, because that was a flawed, failed deal from the very beginning. The nuclear deal guaranteed a nuclear-armed Iran. It was the opposite of what they said it was. It was slowing it down, but making it inevitable with, in many ways, the blessing of the West and the United States. Like their imprimatur, in this case, the Obama administration was placed on a nuclear Iran, even though they would argue, no, 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 that was not the point. That was the de facto reality. So that really changed the shape of Middle Eastern politics. And now you have these alliances between Israel and Middle Eastern Gulf states, Arab countries, and you have the prime minister of Israel for the first time ever making an official visit to the UAE. Thanks to the Abraham Accords, which are one of the biggest achievements of the last administration, the Trump administration, something that everyone said could never happen. Well, it did. And here's new evidence playing out. It's pretty remarkable to watch. We'll be right back. Another hour coming up. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. It's a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com, the podcast is free every day. Fox News alert as we begin our middle hour. The Dow closes down 320 points. Finishing the day at 35,650. Also, another Fox News alert. The governor of Kentucky, Andy Bashir, a Democrat, is giving the country and particularly his state an update on the devastation from the tornadoes that ripped through Kentucky and other parts of the country. At least 74, he says, have died in Kentucky alone 
and at least 109 residents are currently unaccounted for in Kentucky. Let's listen live for a little bit here to Governor Bashir. Uh, recording the damage and working on processing their claim, uh, giving them their claim number. Uh, this is, again, the, the fastest we've ever seen. Eight shelters remain open in Kentucky now. Salvation Army is serving meals and, and providing emotional support. I want to talk just a minute about staying safe while you are cleaning up. As you begin cleaning up, take photos, make a list of your damaged property. This is going to be really important for claiming public assistance. You need to document everything you possibly can. Survivors who cannot stay in their homes, um, we are taking in uh, two state parks. I will give the update on on that. Uh, do not touch power lines. These are these are all things that our people know. Stay safe while you're while you're cleaning up. A uh, couple additional points for outside donations for things like food, supplies, etc. If you're doing that for Graves County, the contact is Graves County Emergency Management. That is 270-727-5114. Volunteer sign up. Do we have the website? There you go. Uh, This is from the Graves County Emergency Management. Um, Please, if you want to volunteer, go through here. One of the challenges, and it's a wonderful challenge for us to have, so many people want to help. It's overwhelming um, uh, many of our first responders who need to be out doing other things. This will significantly help. Please be patient. Um, there's a lot of people who, who want to help. Uh, Paducah Police Department has volunteered to accept food and supplies as well to help out Graves County. Their number is 270-444-8590. Uh, physical address, 1400 Broadway, Paducah, Kentucky, Four two zero zero three. Okay, and this one is really important. Again, we are working on verifying the information from the candle factory uh, that right now would only have eight confirmed dead, which is Christmas miracle we we hope for, but we have to make sure it's accurate. So all of the employees from the Mayfield Consumer Products Candle Factory, we need them to go and to check in at His House Ministries Church at twelve fifty. KY 303, right there in Mayfield. We just want to see you, make sure you're okay, um, and uh, and verify that information. I believe the All phone right, number we will we continue have to now. monitor this press conference in Frankfort, Kentucky. That's Governor Andy Bashir talking about some of the statistics, briefing the media on the very latest. And you heard him there talk about various ways people can help, people can donate, people can volunteer. At times like this, you think of organizations like the Red Cross, the Salvation Army, Team Rubicon, and others, people on the ground helping communities that have really been devastated. I saw Joey Jones, our colleague at Fox, shared a video from local news in Kentucky, a man whose house had been destroyed. Part of his house was still standing, including his piano. And he was sitting at his piano, playing the piano, the song, There is Something About That Name. The peace that passes understanding. And it is a really powerful and moving thing watching this man turn to music and playing his piano in the middle of a house that has been destroyed by Mother Nature. And some of the images and videos over the weekend were just absolutely 
heartbreaking and staggering. The tornadoes were really, really destructive. Kentucky got the brunt of it, but other places as well. Illinois, six other states were affected. And we are joined now by Janice Dean, senior meteorologist at Fox News, New York Times bestselling author. Her latest book is Make Your Own Sunshine, which is going to be the tall task ahead for a lot of people in Kentucky and elsewhere, Janice, because you'll sometimes see footage on the news or a photo or two of a tornado, and you'll see maybe a narrow path of destruction and other people who were spared. In some of these communities, I mean, looking at Mayfield, Kentucky, for example, the images, it's just, it's complete destruction is what it looks like. And it it breaks your heart, especially around Christmas time. It does. It's it's devastating. And I've been covering storms like this for almost 20 years now, and you never get used to seeing those images. But I will tell you that what I've learned over all of these years covering storms like this is that you see the best in humanity coming out to help. Um, on You t- mentioned social media, Joey Jones and, and the fellow that started to play his piano. There are also videos of people driving across state lines to bring food from their restaurants uh, to just sit in front of a church that was destroyed and to make sure that people have bottled water and food and blankets and clothing. Um, so while this is terrible and people have lost their lives and people won't have a Christmas like they wanted, they will see beauty in ways that they never imagined. And that's the true spirit of America. I think that's well said. I think that's exactly right. And of course, it's just so especially difficult for the families of what is now estimated to be over 100 people who have died across these affected states with 74 confirmed dead in Kentucky alone. And Janice, one thing that I thought about watching some of the overhead footage and watching the coverage uh, of this terrible event is tornadoes are one of those really terrifying weather events where it kind of feels random and wherever the tornado ends up, it's sort of like you, you can't necessarily always perfectly predict who will be safe who won't be safe, and what to do if you're under a tornado warning. Because uh, some of the reports, uh, I think in Illinois, there were people told to stay in place and some of them wanted to leave and some of them uh, stayed at their business and ended up dying. What is generally the guidance when you're under a, a significant or a severe or imminent tornado watch or warning? What is the best thing to do? Because it seems like often there aren't great options for a weather event like that. Well, you're absolutely right. It's not like a hurricane where you can evacuate people in advance. You have several days warning and we can give you kind of a, you know, that cone of where we think the worst of the storm is going to come. With a tornado, we can give you kind of a bullseye of where we think all the ingredients are going to come together for tornadoes. Uh, But we can't pinpoint the exact city or town or neighborhood. So that's, Terrible. Uh, but if you live in these areas, and by the way, December, tornado outbreaks happen. I believe the last time Kentucky had a really major tornado outbreak was in the month of December. It's a secondary severe weather season. Uh, it's the change of the seasons. You have one in the spring, you have one in the fall, 
and they came at night overnight, which is the worst time, obviously, for these storms to come because people are sleeping. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's why we have watches and warnings. It's why I urge people to get a NOAA other radio to make sure that you get these warnings. They did have some lead up time. But we always tell people to go to the lowest portion of your home, so the basement. If you don't have a basement, you have to go to an interior room, like a bathroom. So you, you, you pick the room that is the furthest away from the weather that is happening outside, and you have walls to separate you uh, away from the windows, uh, a bathtub. And then if you can put clothes or pillows or even a mattress uh, uh, over you in the bathtub, that can help you as well. Uh, but you're right. You know, a lot of people, we knew there was going to be severe weather. You know, it's really up to you and your family to know what to do and run those drills if there is a warning in place. Janice Dean is our guest, senior meteorologist at Fox News. Janice, I do want to ask you about a story that we saw break on Friday late afternoon into the evening is when I first saw it. And I know that you have said so many things and spoken so many words and written so many words over the course of the last year plus about New York and nursing homes and Governor Cuomo and all of it. And we've had you every step of the way on this show. And we learned through a CNBC report that you were in the crosshairs of the Cuomo's top aides. And when I say the Cuomo's, it appeared that Chris Cuomo, the – former and fired CNN anchor. You've got the former disgraced governor. You've got the former disgraced CNN anchor. These are the brothers that they conspired against you. And apparently Chris was willing to get involved. The goal was to discredit you, paint you as some far right wacko who didn't have to be taken seriously. And I know in some of your initial reaction to this story coming out, uh, you, even though I know I was angry on your behalf, you seemed kind of unsurprised, right, because you were warned if you spoke out consistently, which, of course, is what you did, you would draw the ire and the attention of a pretty ruthless political organization that includes a former governor, his whole team, and uh, in, in this particular case, his brother, a fellow member, or maybe a former fellow member of the news media. Mm-hmm. No, I wasn't surprised. Obviously, I don't want to see my name associated with the B word uh, or know that people are going through my tweets and articles to try to find proof of, you know, right wing, crazy, lunatic behavior. But that's what they do. They try to silence you. And I I learned very early on, you and I have had very, a lot of discussions uh, from the very beginning of this. And a good friend of mine who knows the family very, very well uh, told me, watch your back. And he was very serious. He said, these people will go after you in any way they can, whether it's through your taxes, whether it's through, you know, trying to, uh, you know, get lies uh, published about you. And this happened, by the way, you know, they called us a death cult. They they told my sister-in-law to get a life on social media. And Rich has a party who is still Governor Cuomo's mouthpiece said, you know, I'm not a credible source on anything except the weather. So this has been happening. It's just now I'm realizing that's a little bit more involved with now Chris Cuomo. Yeah, and where they were sort of having these planning sessions or you were coming up and they were plotting against you to try to discredit you. And I think that's just uh, a really ugly thing. They did call you 
allegedly, reportedly the B word, as you pointed out. And I remember at one point there was at least where they tried to heavily imply that you might be lying about what happened to your in-laws dying of COVID in New York nursing homes with uh, all those cover-ups and the the way that they counted nursing home deaths, changing midstream, underreporting those deaths by you know, 50 or more percent, thousands of those deaths being effectively airbrushed away for political purposes, for financial purposes. He had a book to sell and a premise to defend, and uh, and he did so very jealously. But I think what's especially gross and unseemly about it, Janice, is for them to say or at least put out into the universe, oh, maybe she's lying about what happened to her own family or, you know, what a what a B word. Let's call her crazy. Let's try to find some way to paint her as a right winger. They're talking about someone, in this case you, but there were thousands of other people like you who had just had their families devastated by decisions that were made by this governor that he clearly recognized were bad decisions because of the lengths to which his team went to prevent those decisions and the consequences from becoming public. You were a grieving family member who lost both of your parents, uh, both of your husband's parents in New York nursing homes. And there's just a level of callousness that is maybe not shocking given what we now know about the Cuomos and have, have learned in recent months. But it still, I think, is is shocking to some extent that they would talk about and treat grieving families this way, like doing oppo research on you, which is what they were doing. Absolutely. And you're right. Uh, in the early days, uh, his his right hand man uh, asked where my husband's parents died. Give me the nursing home names and give me the dates when they died. So essentially saying, give me proof that your parent, your husband's parents died. You're right. I had forgotten about that. And it brings me back to when it did scare me. Uh, but like I said, I've been doing this for a year and a half now, and I've heard that these people will stop at nothing. Uh, and it doesn't matter what's happened to your family because the Cuomo name is more important than my husband's family name. Well, how's that going for them? The Cuomo name is not in great shape right now because of their own behavior at the governor level, at the media level, that weird nexus that they had that was blessed at CNN for a while and not so much anymore. Uh, The Cuomo name is in rough shape because of those two men, and the Dean name is not. Janice Dean, senior meteorologist at Fox News. You can pick up one of her best-selling books, the most recent one, Make Your Own Sunshine, perhaps ahead of Christmas. Janice, always love having you here under good circumstances and less great circumstances. We do appreciate it. Guy, I love you, my friend, and thank you again for everything. Merry Christmas. We'll see you soon, Janice. It's The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. This is interesting from ABC News. In Florida, for the first time in modern history, registered Republican voters... Now outnumber Democrats. 
Republican Governor Ron DeSantis is heading into a re-election campaign, buoyed by a national profile and a cash reserve unmatched by any Democratic challenger. Republicans currently control virtually all of state government. So this is interesting because you compare this situation to what the situation was in Florida even a few years ago, 2018. They've really turned things around. The most up-to-date figures from the state election agency shows 5,120,076 registered Republicans in Florida compared to 5,095,008 Democrats. So a few thousand, like you could do the math there, what, 11,000-ish? It's not a huge advantage for Republicans, but it is an advantage. Meanwhile, unaffiliated voters, they have swelled to 3.8 million. DeSantis won in 2018 in a year when Democrats, uh, registered Democrats, outnumbered Republicans by more than 250,000 registered voters. So DeSantis barely squeaked by in 2018, a Democratic year when his state had a quarter million more registered Democrats than Republicans. And now for the first time ever, Republicans have built a lead and they have now overtaken the Democrats on on party registration. That's likely why Britt Hume last hour was talking about Ron DeSantis, his reelection prospects. He said he's looking pretty golden. Nothing is guaranteed in politics. Every vote's going to be necessary and important. But I think DeSantis is in pretty good shape because they've built this advantage because of results. There's also been an interesting development moving toward Republican voters in Nevada, something to keep an eye on ahead of 22 and 24. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com, our website, podcast free every day. Thank you for listening, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Joining us now is Josh Krasauer, politics editor at National Journal and Fox News Radio political analyst. Josh, welcome back. Good to be back on the show, Guy. Well, we saw a poll late last week that has the Republicans now leading by 10 points on the generic congressional ballot, a metric that they almost never lead on at all, let alone by 10 points. We've seen a couple polls in recent months that have him uh, have them up rather double digits, 10, 11 points, others in the mid-single digits. And now just yesterday comes... A new poll from ABC News, President Biden's approval rating on inflation, 28 percent, on crime, 36 percent, on the economy. He is really struggling. He has a 57 percent disapproval rating on the economy. The ABC story accompanying their poll notes that the president is, quote, hemorrhaging independent voters, which really does seem to be a big concern for the Democratic Party writ large, independent voters running away screaming, which is what we saw in New Jersey. We saw it in Virginia last month. I wonder what you make of the continued slide of President Biden and how that plays into your column against the grain that you just published a few days ago about a return to normalcy, uh, a return that has not materialized at this point. Yeah, you know, the biggest problem is knowing you have a problem. And unfortunately for the Biden administration, 
they don't seem to realize that this is not a psychological issue for a lot of voters watching inflation and the prices go up for gas, groceries, cars, you name it, right? The, you listen to Ron Klain, the White House chief of staff, you, you, you hear Jen Psaki in the briefing room, and they seem to be treating this as, as something of a, of a psychological issue that people just start you know, looking at gas prices go up a couple pennies, and that, 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 that's why their, their mood is so downcast. Um, that, 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 that couldn't be further from the truth. And, you know, what's really interesting, Guy, is that I think they've got kind of the economy and COVID backwards. I think COVID is actually more of a psychological issue in that their base, a lot of Democrats, a lot of liberals, seem to not be able to get out of the, the, the COVID funk, even though the, the news has been largely good. That now that we have vaccines, now that we have better health outcomes, there's actually a lot of good news to tell on that front, and they don't seem to want to do that very often. Well, and, and not only I mean, that, just to jump in, Josh, it was my opening monologue today. All the data that we're seeing, basically, is that Omicron is less virulent and much less deadly than some of the previous variants, and yet... You have one Democratic official after another rushing to the microphones with very few exceptions, citing Omicron as new reasons to bring back this restriction or consider that new restriction and brand new mandates on this, that or the other. It's like the opposite of what the data shows. It's it's psychologically exhausting for a lot of people who don't feel like what they are hearing about the actual science is aligning with the reaction and the policy decisions made by overwhelmingly one political party. Democratic voters tend to listen to government officials, right? They tend to listen to what Dr. Fauci says. They tend to listen to what Joe Biden says. They trust their 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 their, their politicians in terms of giving them best case public that you know the, the, the public health guidance. So, you know, the White House has a choice to, to have a glass half full optimistic point of view or, or just a downcast we're never getting out of this point of view. And I actually you're seeing some divisions, actually, Guy, within the Democratic Party or within the liberal movement at large. Um, you know, I, I mentioned Governor, uh, the governor of Colorado, Jared Polis, who has yep. explicitly opened, he opened up his state ahead of most other Democratic governors. He has been saying explicitly, we need to get back to normal, get vaccinated, get back to normal. That's in contrast to the New York Democratic governor who's in, you know, in a reelection uh, next year and New York, uh, Kathy Hochul, who's done the opposite and is instituting more and more mandates in a state that, in, a, in an area that has a lot of vaccination, where the, the rate of vaccination is already quite high. Uh, there, there is like a no end game. There's no uh, moment where, where these Democratic officials feel like they, they've accomplished anything because they're constantly moving the goalposts. And that's not that's what voters are feeling. They're, they're feeling a sense of malaise. They're feeling like, when is the where's the light at the end of the tunnel? So, like I said, I mean, the, 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 the White House, I think, has got it backwards. I think they can spin or at least put a put a more rosy note. They have a lot to, to, to be happy about when it comes to the vaccines, when it comes to the, the health outcomes, even though we are facing some uncertainties. But but by and large, it's a good story that the, the, the case counts are, are not as serious as they, as they were last year. We have vaccines. We have a, a way to deal with that and live normally. And yet you're seeing this pessimism, you know, critical uh, mood, this kind of, you know, cold, cold water over, over good news mentality, whereas the economy, the inflation reality is, is being seen everywhere. The disruptions to labor uh, in, in many, for many businesses, the fact that prices are going up and they're out of control in, in, many, in many regions and in many industries. Uh, you know, I, I can just tell you in my daily life, like a couple small businesses that I frequent on a regular basis had to close for a few days because they didn't have enough workers able to, to man the store. These are real things that people see on a daily basis. They're not you know, it's not a matter of like perception. It's a matter of reality. And that, if they got the economy, they put the economy first and foremost. They had a game plan to how to whip inflation, so to speak. And they were actually sounding a more optimistic note 
on COVID so they could get the economy back on track, I think that would be a much more politically savvy note. Instead, I think they've got it backwards and, and they're suffering the political consequences. Josh, I read a story in the last segment from ABC News, and it noted that for the first time in modern history, Republicans, registered Republicans in Florida outnumber registered Democrats. And they pointed out uh, just three years ago, 2018, Ron DeSantis barely and Senator Rick Scott barely won in a pretty Democrat slanted year, 2018, even when the Democrats had a 250,000 voter registration advantage that has been erased and now surpassed by the Republicans. Do you think that that is maybe the number one reason why DeSantis appears to be a pretty strong favorite for reelection? Yeah, that's a big part of it. The, the fact that the Florida, the state of Florida, which is a huge electoral prize, has been tilting and tilting a little more to the Republicans in election after election. And one big reason for that is the fact that the Democrats have taken working class Hispanic voters for granted. Uh, you saw Trump gaining ground from 2016 with Hispanic voters, namely in you know, South Florida with the Cuban population, but also in, in, in the Orlando area with Puerto Ricans. Um, the, the, there's a big migration, not just geographically, but, but you're seeing some significant shifts in Hispanic voting behavior, and it's made Florida from a true toss-up state to, to a lean Republican state. In this political environment, it's hard to see how Democrats uh, really compete there in 2022. There's a big discussion. I can tell you from firsthand reporting that the Democrats are really debating whether they want to spend money in the DeSantis race. They want to spend money in the Senate race against Marco Rubio because you have to spend tens of millions of dollars to really you know, get bang for your buck. And that's a big investment when you have, you know, dozens of other states and other races on the table. So, you know, Florida is just a huge investment. Republicans have been doing it based on, you know, you know they've been successful based on having a message that resonates with, with the majority of the Florida voters, seniors and Hispanics, namely. And uh, it's going to be hard to unseat DeSantis. It's going to be hard to unseat Marco Rubio in that state Senate race. Josh Krasauer, two minutes left here in the segment. I don't know if you saw the CNN story today about Nancy Pelosi where she said that she is sticking around through the midterms. She's planning on running for re-election, and she is not ruling out trying to remain in leadership, even though she had promised her members, especially some sort of a renegade members back in 2018, you know what, vote for me for speaker. I'm going to be done in 2022 at the latest, and then I'm out of here. Sounds like at least publicly she is openly considering reneging on that promise and moving forward anyway for re-election and possibly a leadership election. Uh, some of that might hinge on what actually happens in 2022. If they get their clocks cleaned, I think it'll be uh, the, the yelling about new leadership will grow deafening. But what do you make of that report about what Pelosi's calculation is here? One minute. I have a hard time seeing how she runs for leadership after after this election. I think that's spin to her own caucus, because, look, there, there is a fracturing that's taking place under the radar within the Democratic Party, within its congressional leadership. If she did say she wasn't going to run for re-election, you'd have this, this huge rat race, and it would divide the party between the progressives, the pragmatists. Uh, there would be a generational gap. It, it would open up all these wounds that have been kind of tapered over in, in recent months, all, and it would be, be all out in the open. So I think she's doing her party a favor by running for re-election, kind of forestalling that leadership conversation. But no one's just like a lot of folks don't believe Joe Biden is going to run for a second term because of his age. If Pelosi loses the House, as, as almost everyone expects, uh, given given the environment right now, it, it's almost beggars belief that she'd run for leadership again. I think she'd probably and run by the way, for re-election and leave. 
Josh, just coming full circle to our first topic in my monologue to open the show, this just breaking. Between December 15th and January 15th, California has now announced an indoor universal mask mandate. On top of all the new mandates in New York, it's, it's these mandates are coming back, not in Colorado, but in a lot of these blue places. Uh, the slog continues, and I think a lot of voters feel a great deal of fatigue. Josh Krasauer on The Guy Benson Show. Always appreciate it, Josh. Thanks, Guy. Good to be back. We will step aside and come right back on The Guy Benson Show. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. We're back here on The Guy Benson Show, and as we approach Christmas, what says Christmas more than firing someone for no good reason? It's time for Woke Tales. Woke Tales, This from the New York Post headline, Fordham professor fired after mixing up two black students in class. A Fordham University professor was fired after mixing up the names of two black students in class, according to a report. Hours after what he called an innocent mistake, lecturer Christopher Trogan sent a rambling nine-page email to students in his Composition 2 classes explaining the faux pas. Now, here's what's interesting about what happened here, and here's the mistake that this guy made on top of his initial error. So what happened was, apparently, two black students showed up late to class, and he then got their names reversed when he was referring to one of them. He called one black student the other black student's name, and that student got offended, and I guess that really got this whole ball rolling. He said that he made a simple human error that has nothing to do with race. And he blamed his mistake on his confused brain when the two students arrived to class late. This was on September 24th, while he was reading another student's work at the time. So to me, on its face, based on what we know already, this is preposterously over the top to fire someone for this. He made a mistake. He was distracted. And I think just apologizing and leaving it at what I just read to you, simple human error, I think that should have been more than sufficient to have this blow over in a day, let alone for this to drag on for weeks and culminate in this guy's firing. I think that that is really, really over the top and a huge overreaction that is absolutely emblematic of the types of stories that we cover on woke tale segments. However, where I start to lose a little bit of sympathy for this professor, and I will stress, I still don't believe he should have been fired. And I think at some point you really have to fight back. And we saw this recently at Coastal Carolina, for example. You've got to sue these schools. When there is wrongful termination, when there is a totally indefensible overreaction by an administration because there are some woke people yelling and screaming and they're mad about something. The only way sometimes, and I hate litigious societies, but the only way that you can actually put some fear into the administration or into a a university like this from the opposite direction 
is a wrongful termination lawsuit where you might take a big chunk out of their bottom line and make it painful for them, right? Because the woke, we know what their currency is. It's outrage and it's fear. So sometimes to balance that out or fight back, you can actually go to actual currency, money, because the schools might be afraid of separating from a lot of money. That would look bad for them. It would look bad for donors. It's bad publicity. And the woke mob plays dirty. And they play for keeps. And I think fighting fire with fire, not by getting hypersensitive and doing sort of conservative versions of woke mobs, that's not the solution. The solution is fighting back the way that some people have through lawsuits and through other avenues, like having a bunch of alumni threaten to walk away financially from an institution, for instance. There was an op-ed recently in the Wall Street Journal about that. I believe that was at Cornell, where they asked one of their big alumni for a big donation. He said, well, no, it actually looks like your free speech policies are terrible. Uh, You're not getting my money. In fact, I'm going to set up a free speech society instead. That's what I'm going to do with my money. That got the attention of officials at Cornell. So, yeah, I think a robust response is necessary. The problem, coming back to the situation at Fordham, with the response here from the professor was it wasn't merely a simple open and shut. I got it wrong. I was confused and distracted. It was not racial. And I apologize. It was a human mistake. I think that may have may have been sufficient to end this whole situation or at least make the case for firing him a lot weaker. Instead, he used this nine page diatribe In response to students, this like full prostration, groveling apology to then make his problem worse by trying to play the woke game. He wrote, for example, totally unprompted, that he had spent his, quote, entire life defending and working on, quote, issues of justice, equality and inclusion. The email, according to students, stressed quote, everything he has done for minorities. And so a lot of the students said, well, this was excessive. This was an overreaction to an overreaction where he then tried to use and appropriate the whole lexicon of wokeness to defend himself. And it backfired, of course, because this is how woke rules work. It's Calvin Ball. The standards are always changing and the game is set up for the designated villains to fail. It's how it works. So he was then accused of white saviorism, which is another crime in the annals of wokeness, where he made the mistake, which they said was racist, and then to try to beg forgiveness and keep his job, he went woke and got broke because now he's a white savior talking about what a hero he is for all the stuff he's done for people of color and equity over his entire life, over the course of nine pages. So the game is rigged to lose when you are in the crosshairs. Trying to appease people that way is not going to work, and clearly it did not. And even though I'm critical of what this guy did, I think that he made a basic mistake. I think a clean, clear, crisp, prompt apology and then moving on should have been enough, but he 
decided to dive in head first and the mob consumed him with even greater relish at that point for the new sins that he was committing against the high church of wokeness. Still not an excuse to fire him, in my view. And we'll see. Does he have the guts now to fight this thing legally, or is he going to lick his wounds and say, oh, I guess I deserved it? I guess we'll find out. That's the latest madness on campus, Fordham University in the Bronx, New York City. And that's it for Woke Tales. That's it for this hour of The Guy Benson Show, our final hour, the happy hour, coming right up. is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the Happy Hour on the Guy Benson Show. A new week, a new happy hour. Glad to have you here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast available for free every day. GuyBensonShow.com. You can also go to FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your free podcast. Should you miss the show as it airs 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday. So the one-stop shop, your number one resource for all things Guy Benson Show is conveniently and memorably GuyBensonShow.com. And the happy hour sponsored by the Finnish long drink, which is really good. The more people try it, the more I hear from you, the more fans are just piling up. People are on the bandwagon. TheLongDrink.com is their website. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only, please. And a quick programming note. Check out special report tonight. I'll be on the panel with Brett Bayer and company. That is this evening Fox News Channel coming up in the next hour. I want to address a tweet over the weekend from Senator Bernie Sanders, the Vermont socialist. And he was championing this build back better Biden agenda. And he was giving voice to a Democratic left wing talking point that we hear all the time, which is this is actually very popular. This bill with the American people, the American people really, really want this legislation to become law. The people are crying out for build back better. This is what they say. And it's just these awful Republicans refusing to listen to the majority of the American people who are standing in the way of all sorts of great solutions. And what's hilarious is no matter what crisis or what challenge arises in this country, their solution to all of those things just happens to be build back better. It's like, oh, massive inflation. We need to spend trillions of dollars. They say this with a straight face. So here was Bernie's tweet, quote, while the majority of the American people have expressed overwhelming support for the Build Back Better Act and delivering for working Americans, Republicans continue to oppose it. Maybe, just maybe, that's why they have to resort to voter suppression. Now, I don't quite understand what 
the voter suppression one-liners about, right? It's a bit of a uh, an out-of-nowhere comment from left field. It's a non-sequitur there from Bernie. And the voter suppression, the way they define it on the left, is crazy. It's not a serious argument. Let's instead tackle his argument that Build Back Better is popular. A majority of Americans with overwhelming support. Those are his words. That's how he framed it before he teed up that non-sequitur about voter suppression. I'm not sure Bernie has been paying close attention recently because the number one concern among voters is the economy and chiefly inflation. And most people recognize that pumping trillions of new dollars unpaid for into the economy will fuel this problem. And as we noted on Friday's show, when I joined Harry Hurley, the Congressional Budget Office was tasked by Republicans with getting rid of all the gimmicks that the Democrats have packed into this uh, score for Build Back Better to get all the House Democrats on board, all of them except one, voted for it. And one of their biggest gimmicks was to have the tax increases, including, by the way, tax increases on many middle-class families, have those be ultra-generous and go out for many years and then have some of the benefits expire, quote-unquote, with these bogus expiration dates after just a few years. And the Democrats have said there's a great montage that the Republicans put out from the House and from the House Ways and Means Committee. Just every time these Democrats were saying publicly, oh, yes, we expect these programs to be made permanent. We expect to extend these programs. Uh, we'll figure that out later. The promise that they're making to the American people is these are permanent new programs. That's absolutely their intention. It's the whole point to permanently expand government. But in order to make the math, quote unquote, work. Right, to make the score look less expensive, they write down on paper, which is what the CBO has to look at and evaluate when they're scoring this thing. Oh, well, this will be done after two years. This will be done after three years. They have no intention of those sunsets actually happening. They'll just attack Republicans. Anyone who doesn't want to extend it and extend it permanently, it's, you know, you're hurting the kids and you're hating men, women and children, all their normal song and dance demagoguery talking points. They'll trot those out and their expectation is that they'll get them extended. But they don't want the extensions to be included in the math because when you actually do that math the right way, clearing out all the gimmicks, the Congressional Budget Office found that as opposed to a few hundred billion dollars of added deficits, which is still a lot and certainly a lot more than zero, which is what their crazy talking point is. That's their promise. They should be evaluated based on their promise, which is zero dollars added to deficits. They're already off even with their manipulated score. They're off by hundreds of billions of dollars. But what CBO found was if you extend these over the full 10-year window, which is the honest way to do it, the deficits go up by $3 trillion, $3 trillion, on top of the sea of red ink that we already have in Washington, D.C. So in any case, Bernie Sanders couldn't care less about the deficits or the debt. He's a socialist, spent as much money as possible. I do find it odd that he is going to the mats for legislation that gives tax breaks to millionaires. Two out of three millionaires in America get a huge tax break under the Democrats' bill, while tens of millions of middle-class people get tax increases. That's interesting that Mr. Populist Socialist is in favor of that, the guy who rails against millionaires. Well, he's giving them a tax break if he gets his way, but I guess the idea is the bigger the government gets, the more money we spend. That is the ultimate goal. So if you got to do these other things along the way, then fine. That might be the mentality of Bernie Sanders. But what to make of this overwhelming majority support thing? Well, 
NPR, not exactly a bastion of right-wingery, they commissioned a poll on this. They asked the American people, do you support the Build Back Better bill, which they're calling $2 trillion. Of course, the real cost is 4 to $5 trillion. But even when they poll it at $2 trillion, want to hear how overwhelming the support is? The overwhelming majority of 41% of Americans say they support the bill. 41%. That includes the overwhelming majority of Democrats. But when you ask anyone who is not a partisan Democrat what they think of it, support absolutely craters. You will not be surprised that just 13% of Republicans are in favor of it. I'd like to meet them. Who are the 13% of Republicans saying, oh, yes, please spend trillions on these massive, huge government programs? Fortunately, those Republicans are not represented in Congress, where every single Republican is against this bill. But crucially, it's independents. Independents are the swing voters. They're the ones who make or break public opinion. Support for Build Back Better among independents is at 36%. The poll from NPR also asked, will this bill, would this project improve your life? Would you benefit from it? And surprise, surprise, 42% say yes. So almost identical. Vast majority of Democrats say yes, it would help us. Only 36% of independents say the same. Which would be the same 36% of independents who support the bill. All the rest of them, a clear majority, a big majority of independents are against it. So that might be some more fuzzy math from Bernie Sanders. He calls that overwhelming majority support. 41%, 36% among independents. I think in reality, it's a very different story. Meanwhile, from ABC News, more than two-thirds of Americans, 69%, disapprove of how Joe Biden, the president, is handling inflation. He's at a robust 28% approval rating on inflation, and they want to spend trillions more. That will add trillions to deficits. It's crazy. I saw a poll out of West Virginia. Why is West Virginia important? Well, you know who represents West Virginia. Joe Manchin, the key vote here. And he's got his phone call with Biden today. They're still coming after him, trying to pressure him, trying to lobby him to vote for this thing. Well, in Manchin's home state, a Remington research poll asked the people of West Virginia, do you believe the multi-trillion dollar package being considered by Congress, known as Build Back Better, will make inflation worse or decrease inflation? And Manchin has been talking a lot about inflation for months now and deficits and debt, things that Democrats almost never talk about. He's concerned about them, as he should be. As are his constituents, 64 percent of West Virginians say this will make inflation worse. Only 14 percent are silly enough to believe that it will decrease inflation, which is the White House talking point. So you've got the White House trying to lobby Joe Manchin on a talking point that only 14 percent of Manchin's constituents actually believe. I saw another poll out of New Hampshire, a Senate battleground. In 2022, where they asked New Hampshireites, more of a swing state in the Northeast, what do you think about this? A majority of New Hampshire voters believe that Build Back Better will make inflation worse. So there's a bit of an uphill climb if they want to win these votes. And there's a few, just a few holdouts. And I hope they keep holding out because doing this, passing this legislation, as it is, under any circumstances, I think would be a terrible idea. I think it is a ruinously terrible idea in the middle of inflation. 
after we've just spent trillions of emergency dollars over the last two years, like six trillion on COVID. Then they want to do this and just be the new FDR. We cannot afford it in any sense of the word. And I hope Senator Manchin is paying closer attention to the actual sentiments of the American people than Bernie Sanders is. And so far, that appears to be the case. And he's got a better handle on the math. I know that Chuck Schumer and others are just poo-pooing and dismissing the new CBO score, the true score, as fake and made up in this Republican talking point. No, that's the actual math. And Manchin appears to know it. In fact, he was asked today about this. And he said that Build Back Better should not rely on temporary spending that is intended to be permanent. That's the whole game. That's the whole scheme that the Democrats are trying to pull here. And Manchin explicitly rejected it. Quote, I don't think that's a fair evaluation of saying we're going to spend X amount of dollars, but then we're going to have to come back and find more money. That is the Democrats whole plan here. And if Manchin isn't on board, then their plan is stuck. Let's hope that's the case. It's the Guy Benson Show. Don't go anywhere. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The hour on The Guy Benson Show as we are back. So... I will confess this next topic. I'm going to need help from producer Christine wading through all of it. I've seen headlines and tweets, and I think I've put together what happened here in my head, but I am still a little bit unclear about the deal here with Peloton and a controversy involving Sex in the City. I guess Sex in the City, the HBO show, is back. I don't know. Do they have a new season or something? And there is Pelotons featured in an episode, I guess, in a negative light. And I guess people are reacting, wow, Peloton didn't even get a heads up that their product and one of their instructors is going to be like, you know, featured in some episode. And there were questions about whether Peloton maybe could sue Sex in the City. And then there's already some ad that Peloton put out embracing the whole thing. Christine, help me. I've never watched Sex in the City. I don't have much interest in it. What? What's What's the issue here? By the way, is it sex and the city or sex in the city? Well, first of all, before we start any of this, are you saying that you need my reporting? Is that what you're asking right now? I wouldn't go that far, but I, I need you to sort of walk us through this very Christine controversy. Okay, so the show, the original show on HBO was called Sex and the City. And, and okay. And for you to say that you have never watched an episode, I'm in complete shock. Not like, a single one. Wow. Wow. Okay, but this is the reboot to that, and the show is called And Just Like That. So basically, it's Sex and the City, but now we're 20-some-odd years later— Things have changed. Not all the characters are there. But uh, the main character, Carrie, who is Sarah Jessica Parker, is married to Mr. Big, Chris Noth. And and I know Christopher Noth from Law & Order. He was one of the original Law & Order detectives. Oh, really? So that, yeah, that's how I know him. Okay, so. I can picture him. And I think I think he was on one of the, the spinoffs later of Law & Order. We digress. Please go on. 
So I, right now, if anybody is wanting to watch Sex in the City, because the, they've, they've already put out the first two episodes on HBO Max, uh, probably lower the volume a little bit if you don't All right, want so we've spoiler. got some spoilers here for And Just Like That. Correct. So if you, if you don't want spoilers, then now's your chance to tune out. All right, go on. Okay, so Mr. Big in the first episode suffers what it seems like is a heart attack because he was uh, riding the Peloton. He had done a 45-minute ride. It was his thousandth ride. He was riding oh. He was riding with Jess King. I don't know who that is. I don't have a Peloton. Yeah, yeah, Jess King is one of the instructors. She's not one that I use often, but I've done some Jess King rides. Okay, so this character is suffering a heart attack right now. Off the bike. He gets off the bike. He's about to go in the shower and then he collapses. And uh, Carrie, wow. Carrie walks in and she tries to help or whatever, but no, he died. So basically, it looks like. Oh my God, he dies? Yes, he dies. It's crazy. It's crazy because he was. And they're kind of attributing this in the show to Peloton. No wonder people were mad. And Peloton. Didn't the know. company had no idea. Jess King had no idea, but she's like depicted as like killing someone. So what happened is that Peloton said they approved the appearance on the show from the creator, um, but they knew nothing about Big's death. They were not yeah, made aware of the plot line. So seems like an important detail. Yeah, this wasn't if basic. Your you know, product like, is being portrayed as killing someone. Right. This isn't perfect plot product placement. You know, this isn't uh, what no. they wanted. So I think Plus, Peloton exercise would stave off heart attacks is sort of the the whole idea. But please go on. So now the company has responded with a commercial featuring Jess King and Chris Noth. And um, I have the commercial here ready for you to go. And it just, Wait, so hang on. It's featuring the actor who plays Mr. Big with the Peloton instructor from the ad. Yes. Yes. Okay. That is actually pretty clever. Are they are they like doing a Peloton ride? Do we, should we play this? Play it. To new beginnings. To new beginnings. You look great. Well, I feel great. Should we take another ride? Life's too short not to. The world is reminded that regular cycling stimulates and improves your heart, lungs, and circulation, reducing your risk of cardiovascular <laughs> diseases. Cycling strengthens your heart muscles, lowers resting pulse, and reduces blood fat levels. He's alive. So do you know who that right, voice is? Who? That's Ryan Reynolds. Oh, my gosh. Which is another callback to a previous Peloton-related controversy, the Christmas ad from a few years ago. Correct. Ryan Reynolds hired that actress for a subsequent like follow-up ad to promote his gin product. Oh my word, this is a lot of very inside references, but that is, I would say, pretty well played because the ad is called, and just like that, he's alive. They do a his and hers Peloton ride. It zooms out and pans out, and there are the two Peloton bikes. They're saying, actually, it helps your health. It reduces the likelihood of this type of thing happening, and just like that, he's alive. Okay, My hat is off to Peloton. I think they played this very well. Good explanation, Christine. I'll give you that. That's what Christmas Cookie does. She reports. You decide. (laughs) The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Back after this.
Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier in the program, we had Britt Hume back here, senior political analyst at Fox News. He and I will actually be on the panel together with Brett Bayer in the 6 p.m. hour special report tonight. We touched on a number of topics, including the 2024 election. Never too early to talk about it, apparently. A lot to get to with Brett Hume. Here's part of that discussion. I want to start with the uh, Peggy Noonan op-ed a few days ago, December 9th, it came out. Wall Street Journal is her column. And the headline is Kamala Harris needs to get serious. And it was a pretty blunt, but I would say inarguably accurate assessment of the vice president. And it's a negative assessment, which is the same assessment that most of the country has reached about our vice president at this point. There was sort of a blue checkmark lefty journalist Twitter cadre that really went hard after Peggy Noonan for writing what she wrote and attacking her and calling her unqualified and overrated and all this stuff, which is actually perhaps what applies to the vice president of the United States. What did you make of uh, Peggy Noonan's column? And what did you make, perhaps more interestingly, of the reaction to it? Well, I, I had a very different reaction to it from the blue checks that you're describing who you know attacked Peggy Noonan afterwards. My problem with the column was that I thought that it was sound advice in one sense. But basically what she was saying was that Kamala Harris should now become the kind of person that Kamala Harris is not and never has been, which I think is is uh, perhaps nice, but highly unrealistic advice. I think the chances of anything like that coming about are pretty remote. You know, people get to a stage in life and they kind of are who they are, and Kamala Harris has has sort of identified herself as, a, as being lighter than air, and I don't know that she can recover from that because it's basically who she is. And that is partially what Noonan argued in the column. And yet there were a lot of people who, you know, went crazy. Is this just because they are very protective of someone who very well may become president potentially or certainly could be the party's nominee for president, the Democratic Party, which is the party that most journalists belong to? Uh, Is that what's going on here? Is it she's a woman of color, so they want to go to bat for her because any criticism is therefore you can't call Peggy Noonan sexist, but you can maybe imply that there's a racial element. It just feels like the the defense was not really on the merits. The defense didn't really seem to be a rebuttal on the points, just sort of like you're a terrible person for writing this. I think that's exactly what it sounded like to me as well. And I think it was kind of a partisan reflex response uh, from people who are indeed protective of Kamala Harris because, you know, she looked on paper in some respects for so long to be a tremendously promising young leader in the Democratic Party. And then she went out and completely uh, fell on her face in the primary season and was chosen by Joe Biden, in my judgment, for sort of a combination of, of reasons, most of which had to do with the boxes that she checks because she's black and she's female and she's liberal and, and so on. So, um, you know, and she hasn't turned out to make much of a, an impression as vice president. She's had she struggled, I think it's fair to say. My full interview with Britt Hume available online. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get the free podcast. It is on demand, no charge, every single day. GuyBensonShow.com. When we come back the home stretch, we'll do a little weekend recap, including a new rule for producer Christine's daughter, Based on something that she heard, we'll get to that and explain straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com.
home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Well, there's a lot to get to from this past weekend. Producer Christine was very curious about a boat parade that I attended. I believe it was Friday night on the eastern shore of Maryland. You saw some of my Instagram stories at Guy P. Benson on Instagram, I will note. If you want to follow me personally, Guy P. Benson, Instagram and Twitter. If you want to follow the show, at Guy Benson Show, Instagram and Twitter. But on my personal account, Guy P. Benson, I posted a few images and videos of the boat parade, Christmas boat parade, which is exactly what it sounds like. I mean, I don't know what the what the mystery here is exactly. You just had some boats where they decked them all out in Christmas cheer and Christmas themes, and they sort of puttered around a little harbor in Maryland, and people gathered and waved and had some drinks in some cases and shouted Merry Christmas and it was it was very sweet and one boat had antlers another boat had icicles and snowflakes that would light up one boat was being chased by jaws but like a christmas jaws there were boats with full christmas trees on them it was great it was a cool tradition that I'd never been a part of but I enjoyed it I feel like, was this something that appealed to you, Christine? Uh, you, you seemed curious, but I think the parade kind of spoke for itself. I think you answered my questions. I had never really heard about a boat parade before. Um, I would like to go on a boat parade. Now, let me ask you something. Were the Was the decor tacky to you, or was it your aesthetic? I mean, I think it was a mix, but I think that this was a one day or one evening event. So if you want to go a little crazy, a little over the top, a little ridiculous, that's fine because it's not permanently on your residence for a month or in in your case, like an entire quarter of the year. I think like for one night only, it was perfectly charming. Some of them were blasting Christmas music from the boats. I may or may not have had a cocktail because there was this bar right on the harbor. I think you would have very much liked it. Sign Even, me up. Okay. Yeah. I mean, this is this is up your alley. Uh, Christmas lights, Christmas music, and booze. Now, speaking of that, Christine, you had to text me over the weekend about a new rule in your household involving your daughter, Megan. What happened? Oh, so I'm sorry to let you know this, but Megan is now banned from listen listening. Well, not to the whole Guy Benson show, but she is certainly banned from listening to Bonus Benson on the weekends. And she will no longer— And the longer, home stretch, yeah, this segment will, right now. Yep, she will no longer be listening to the home stretch. She likes to hear it when we're in the car on the weekends because she wants to hear Mommy. And then last week she couldn't believe she got to hear Daddy, so— she loves to hear it, but, uh, and we had questions. You know, she did ask me what an alcoholic is, and mommy, why does he call you a psychopath? Once she asked me, is that my uncle? I said, no, no, that is not your uncle. No, that's my best friend, Guy. She's probably very confused about all of your comments regarding, quote, our wedding. There's probably a lot of very confusing things for an eight year old girl listening where we, on a regular basis, joke that her mom is like a completely out of control nutty, heavy drinker, right? I I feel like that would be an obvious no when it comes to the eight-year-old daughter because perhaps that humor would be lost on a child who, you know, kids tend to take things literally. I was surprised that you were letting her listen 
to the home stretch. We encourage the home stretch listenership for every single person in America except for little Megan. That would be my guidance. Well, thank you. I'm now going to take your guidance because on our way to breakfast with Santa Saturday morning at the <laughs> Catholic school Megan goes to, <laughs> we may have been listening to a little bonus Benson. She may have heard guy singing about stumbling around the Christmas tree. Yes, it was it was my version of rocking around the Christmas tree, but it was about you. Do we want to remind people of the song? I mean, by stumbling all means. around the Christmas tree, it's a super drunk cookie. Right, that was the song. Yes, you thought it was sloshing around the Christmas tree, which is a good. That's maybe the second verse. Well, I, I, when we get to the second verse, it could be sloshing. Yeah, I mean, you've said sloshing around before when you I have described. That's me. true. So we get and also to- sloshing. Sounds closer to rockin', so that might actually be the better lyric. I'm glad that you helped me improve this song about you. But please continue. We're gonna pitch this to Fox Nation, aren't we? I I have no idea what that pitch would possibly look like, and I would like to keep my job. So maybe not. So let's let's put that on Wyatt. Wyatt can write that up and see what he comes up with. But uh, I keep interrupting you. So Megan. Heard that. Okay. Now we are at uh, having pancakes with Santa and Megan is, you know, running around with some of the kids. And all of a sudden I hear Emily, Emily stumbling around the Christmas tree. And I had to stop her. And I said, Megan, no, 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 no. That's not, we don't talk to the other kids. No. Because how are you? And then I hear my mommy's on the radio. And I said, no, 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 no. We're not, we're not going to talk about any of this right now. Let's just focus The other parents are like, I mean, she failed so miserably as a class parent, but maybe there is a real problem here. What was this? Did you hear about this stumbling around the Christmas tree song? Apparently it's so bad they're talking about it on the radio. I have to tell you I could imagine this becoming like a big community game of telephone. All about cookie. I did go up to the class mom who ran the Santa breakfast. Like she is what you call a go-getter. I mean, she does everything. So I went up to her and I said, oh, you know, you put on such a great, you know, breakfast. I would love to help next year. And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah you know, you, can, you know, and then she goes, well, you know, it's like the Knights of Columbus. You don't we don't really need a ton of volunteers. Yeah, it's like a little pat on the head. Thank you, though, because they probably have a photo of you in the like the guidebook that comes with class parenting and they get the binder of instructions. There's a photo. Do not enlist this woman for help. She is unreliable. She told me to sign the thank you card on on the main desk. And that was about it. (laughs) I think that was the extent of, of what you were able to actually accomplish. By the way, before I forget, I have to say, because you texted me about the uh, Christmas tree song incident. There was also a text chain ongoing throughout the weekend among the team because you spent, was it yesterday, part of yesterday at the Big Apple Circus? And you're like, oh, I'm at the circus. And you had a photo of the tent or whatever. And Quiet Wyatt, out of nowhere, comes in and just drops a bomb on producer Christine. Quiet Wyatt, what did you say about the circus photograph? I said, oh, is that why you're selling your house? (laughs) Brutal. Just brutal. She's joining the circus. She's leaving us to join the circus. We all know she'd be a clown. I mean, maybe Carnival Barker. I don't know. But that was a good joke. But you, you apologized quickly for the joke. You backed away from your own joke. 
I was like, wow, I'm impressed. And then you apologized. I, I thought it was I thought it was a great joke, but I also wanted to respect Christine and I had to apologize. So. It was a good joke. Christine, were you upset by the uh, joke? And, or did I, you listen, have to I laugh? always appreciate a good joke, so of course I can laugh at it. But I did tell Wyatt later that uh, we have to limit the amount of time that he does spend with you because I feel like you're rubbing off on him. And I don't no, see, need, I don't I need think, two of I you. Think, Mm-mm, you got the wrong culprit here. I think it was his recent time spent with Maxie and your husband, Bobby. That's where he's getting the roasting of Christine instincts. I'm not sure, but l- listen, less Guy Benson, <laughs> less, you know, socialing, more Wall Street Journal and Sunrises, Wyatt. I, that's the Wyatt I like and need in my yeah, life. Yeah, she's like, a little quieter, please, quiet Wyatt. So he did make the joke about you selling the house, which reminds me, you had your open house. This weekend, right? Two days. How did it go? I mean, it was successful in the fact that we had so many people coming. We had, you know, three or four private right. showings before and Foot after. Traffic. Oh, there was a line, like a line to get into our home. But um, it is now almost 6 p.m. on Monday. I have not heard of one offer. So I'm a little surprised by that. But then some people say, you know, you got to give it time. You know, just yeah, I mean, it's, it's a life it just decision. Happened. Yeah, Saturday and Sunday, no offers yet, but uh, that doesn't mean no offers. And I also have to restrain myself from listening in. You know, we have cameras inside the home, and you can listen in. So I would, like, take a peek and listen in, but then you but hear But you have the- cameras inside your house? Yeah, of course. We have external, like, exterior cameras. Oh, I know. For- so you have them inside? Yes, because we want to, um, don't forget, we're all out of the house all day for hours at a time. We want to make sure Rosie's okay and then, you know, just. Okay. We just. Little uh, elf on the shelf with ears, apparently. Uh, so, oh, so you can actually spy on the prospective buyers. Yeah, and you can listen to them and their critiques of my home, which is no bueno. I mean. Wait, did you actually spy on them? Yeah, of course I did. Wait, am I, hold on. Before I say yes to that, am I allowed to do that? Is that legal? I think it's probably legal. I think it's a terrible idea, though, because you love your house. You think it's a great house, and any little criticism anyone might have, especially you, Christine, would take it super personally. You could end up with a grudge and getting – maybe taking things the wrong way. Am I sensing what happened here? Are you in a bad mood perhaps because you heard some people saying things about – your home that you don't agree with? You know, I listen, I'm not angry about the people that said, like, you know, the bedrooms are too small or something like that. But, like, the decor criticism is definitely not necessary when I know I've decorated that house very, very nicely. So they could keep their comments to themselves. And, like, I don't want them to have my house then. That's fine. Well, they, they might be listeners to Bonus Benson, honestly, given how we discuss your uh, choices, let's say, when it comes to interior design. So maybe, maybe in fact, people, you're just getting some real-time feedback from America who just agree with me. I don't know. I wouldn't know because I'd never been invited to your house. But so you were like, you were just taking this personally. Were you taking mental notes and names? Like, well, if they offer, then too bad because they didn't like my indoor inflatables. Or whatever. I don't have indoor ones. I have the outdoor ones. But uh, there was one woman who was like just like so nasty about everything in the house. And then she's like flailing her arms and she's like, this isn't my house. I said, well, if it's not your house, then get out. 
Okay? Don't worry about it. Go find another home. I was getting so angry. Do you have a little speaker? Do you have like an intercom where you can, you can then talk back I to them? I can, like, Bobby. Then get out. You where can. did that voice come from? You can, and I could have. I didn't. Uh, Bobby also deleted the app on my phone yesterday, so I, I couldn't look at it anymore because I was becoming obsessed. So he just deleted the whole thing. I think that is probably smart. I think you probably shouldn't have listened because it's going to be in your head now. Was there any helpful feedback that might actually help you sell the house? Like, oh, if it were priced at X, then we'd offer. Or was, were you just no, focused on, lady, you know, the baubles? Some lady was like, oh, my gosh, this house is priced way too high for the amount of work I would have to do to fix it. So um, like, now get out. <laughs> Bobby would have killed me. So I don't know why your voice is so deep in this, but <laughs> I don't know it, it makes it funnier to me. That's not my reporting voice, just so you know. No, oh, I know. you we wouldn't know. You week. wouldn't know because you don't let me report. Well, we I think you did an impression of yourself reporting with the uh, chopper in the background, which my dad thought was funny, but he's like, but she, it was not a traffic report, so I don't know why there was a helicopter. I said that exactly. So yes, the house is still ours. Um. No offers have been made. For now. For, for now. now. But a lot of foot traffic, a lot of interest, a so lot. line out the door. So, you know, let's just, let's see what happens over the next couple of days. And if by the end of the week, still nothing, then we can have you back on and you can sort of have a, a panic therapy session here. And we can talk through some, maybe some tips, some real estate tips. Ooh, maybe we can get like a real estate expert on the show. Well, we're going to have cookie. We're going to have plenty to talk about because I just told you what happened to my daughter's school. We can we could dive into that tomorrow. Yeah, we heard about that during the break. We don't have time for it now. But yes, I have thoughts on that as well. So stay tuned. There's a little tease for the Tuesday edition of The Guy Benson Show coming up. Same time, same place tomorrow. See you on Special Report tonight with Brett Bayer, Juan Williams, Britt Hume. That's all coming up on Fox News Channel. Then back here on the radio. We will talk to you then. Have a great night. Listen to be part of the conversation with me, Brian Kilmeade. I'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the podcast at briankilmeadeshow.com. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.